Is that? There we go. All right. <laughs> All righty. Well, it is a privilege to be sharing with you this afternoon. Um, to continue on what we've started before in First John, but um, what a what a special family we have here, hey? I um, you know, I, I love school holidays, um, but it that does always create a little bit of difficulty when it comes to looking after the kids on the days that. Kendall and I are both working, um, but just this week we had uh, Steve and Anita came up to the farm, they stayed a night and, um, and, and looked after the four kids for an entire day, which is a, a feat in itself. Um, and you know, the, the kids just had an amazing day. For them, it's like, coming here is like just having a whole bunch of aunties and uncles. For me, it's like having a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. And then yesterday with James and Mel's celebration of the, the pending twins, um, you know, just such a special time. It's kind of like going to a family gathering, only you want to see everybody there, you know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And then, I mean, I'm so stoked for John and Esther. Hey, I, uh, I've been trying not to let that slip for a little while. <laughs> Gosh, how good is God, hey? Man. But it's good to be get to, good together today and just um, and opening up God's Word together. So we're, we're going to continue along in our exposition of 1 John, so if you want to just turn or, or tap your way there now. Um, the text today is 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 28. One of the things about teaching expositionally is that you don't really choose the topic of your sermon, you know, but something has, has just really impressed on me this past week or two as, I, as I've studied and prepared for this afternoon, and that is that there's no accidents when it comes to God. Just personally, I've been challenged um, as I've read and reflected and, and studied the text, but I also believe that there's something that God wishes for us um, as a fellowship to be taught as well. I guess today what I, what I don't want is to come up here and to appear intelligent in front of you, you know, pulling out the Greek and the Hebrew, and that's a, a real temptation for me. Thanks, hon. That's awesome. A real temptation for me. Because it's kind of what I do, in a sense, is try and get the answers together. Um, so if that's your impression of today, then I've failed. But I guess what I want to see is that you are convicted. I want to see that you see me as someone who's convicted, because I feel convicted. Um, and I hope that you see that too. I think there is something that God's wanting to say to us, to Cal's Nui, to this little family um, of believers just fulfilling our purpose here in, Cal's, in Newcastle, little city of Newcastle. You know, one of the key principles that we hold on to in this church um, since its start and, and even in, in the Calvary Chapel movement um, worldwide, um, I think that has really defined in some sense the movement is this idea of worshipping God in spirit and in truth. Um, the, the question is, where do we get this notion of worshipping God in spirit and in truth? And what does it mean for our lives, both corporately and individually, in the church here and now, to worship in spirit and in truth? You'll recall in John's Gospel, um, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's from John chapter 4, just after, for God so loved the world, interestingly. Hey? What's cool about those songs is that every single one of those songs had a verse that we're looking at today in it. Would you believe? It was blowing my mind. I don't know if, um, 
if John somehow got a copy of my notes, but the cho- songs he chose were just bang, 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 exactly what we're talking about, which is awesome. But you remember, Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman at this well, this woman who has really been ostracized, even by the Samaritans, who have been ostracized themselves by the Jews. So she's the, the, the lowest of the low. She's out in the middle of the day. No one should be out there. It's hot. She's out there by herself. Normally, it's a social event. Jesus comes up, and they have this little bit of a banter together. And after a bit of, a bit of back and forth, and Jesus is really just kind of showing grace and a lot of insight um, and, and some miraculous discernment as well. And the woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet.'" Our fathers, that's the Samaritans' fathers, worshipped on this mountain here, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming that neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He he was called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So you see, this woman was speaking really in in a very material sense about where we worship God. And Jesus answers, not with a where, but with a how we are to worship God, which is in spirit and in truth. So what does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? It's, it's a nice catchphrase, one that pretty much all Christians would agree is a, a good thing. You know, yeah, it sounds, sounds good at a surface level, but I'm going to suggest we can pretty easily miss the mark um, to one side or another. And that misunderstanding could be catastrophic in terms of not only our personal relationship with God, but also our witness to a world who doesn't know God. First, as we get to the text, let's just pray. I'm going to ask God to come and to teach us, to teach me. Father, we just still our hearts before you now. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. Lord, you are here by your Spirit moving amongst us. And uh, we are grateful for your presence with us, God. We're grateful that you would call this bunch of ragtag individuals together to worship you, the one true God. Lord, move amongst us. Teach us. Give us ears of eyes and hearts of discernment to hear what it is that you want to tell us. Convict us, I pray. Convict me, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So verse 18, I'm teaching from the ESV. Uh, it's very similar to the New King. Um, it's just the one I had. So follow along in whatever you've got. But verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So First John chapter 2, verse 18 Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, if you were here last time, you may recall that John is writing to the church in Ephesus, the place where he'd spent more time than anywhere else after Jerusalem. He left Jerusalem and really spent more time building up this church in Ephesus. And he returned there after a stint in exile on the Isle of Patmos under the emperorship of Domitian. Um, Domitian dies, John goes back, he's an old man, he's in his, well into his 90s, uh, and he, he's come home, 
But we see here that he's, as he's come home, he's, he's discovered some ugly truths about what has been happening in the area. Uh, and presumably while he was absent. You see, this group had set themselves up in the area and they were called the Gnostics. They held to a, a belief called Gnosticism. And what was happening was these guys called themselves Christians. Okay, but they were not at all. They claimed a, a sort of additional knowledge that was superior to the teaching of the apostles. And, and don't we see that so often? You know, that, that something is considered good or true simply because it's new. They were talking about these, these deep truths um, that had special ways of being known. known. Uh, but most importantly, they denied that Jesus was truly the Messiah, saying that the Messiah was, was simply, in a sense, put upon Jesus um, for a time, but that the Messiah himself did not in fact die because they couldn't fathom this idea of the Messiah actually dying. Of course, it's complete rubbish. But if we can be sure of anything at all in this world, we can be sure that people are easily deceived. And so it looks like these people were being affected in a big way by this group of people in Ephesus. And so John addresses this, and we're introduced to this term antichrist, antichristos. It's a direct translation um, more on the literal meaning of the terms shortly, but needless to say that an antichrist is someone who sets himself up against, anti, against Christ. That is, against the Messiah, against Jesus. In other places, we see that the antichrist is a prominent figure in end times theology, what's called eschatology. It's the study of the last things. Eschatology and antichrist, he, the antichrist figures quite heavily in that that branch of theology. Interestingly, for those who do know their eschatology, the word antichrist is used only seven times in all of the Bible, in all of the New Testament, all of the Bible, and all seven times are in John, 1 John and 2 John. That's it. You don't hear the word antichrist mentioned anywhere else. But despite this, the concept of antichrist is mentioned in in multiple different parts of Scripture. And basically, the, the antichrist is a man who in the end times will rise up to oppose Christ and those who follow him. He'll seek world domination and eventually he'll work to destroy both Israel and all who follow God. He'll claim to be the Messiah himself and sadly many will believe him. We see him both in the Old Testament, in Daniel and in the New Testament and always at a particular time of world history that is the final period called the Tribulation which precedes Christ's thousand-year reign. Okay? He's, he's, He's the boastful king of Daniel 7 who oppresses the Jews. He's the leader who establishes a seven-year covenant with Israel in Daniel chapter 9. He's a king or a a false Christ who in Mark chapter 13 will attempt to install the abomination of desolation in the rebuilt Jewish temple at the end of time. He is the man of lawlessness described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's the rider on a white horse in Revelation 6 who comes to bring apparent peace. He's the first beast in Revelation chapter 13 who is in league with Satan persecuting the saints. We even know his demise in Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, at this time, clearly from these writings in the Old Testament and also from the writings that had already been written, which is most, including Revelation at this point in time, but most of the writings of the New Testament had already been written, the early Christians in that area had come to expect that an antichrist would come. And they began to put together this idea that they should expect 
an antichrist. It's likely then that this word, this word antichrist began to circulate by these people to describe this man of lawlessness, this false messiah, and John appropriated this word that they were now using to explain the doctrine further. But what does he mean by, so now many antichrists have come? Well, first he makes it clear that we are not talking about the antichrist. So all that to say that there is an antichrist, but this doesn't deal with it at all. This text is not about the antichrist, it's about antichrists, plural. First, he makes it clear that we are not talking about the antichrist, but also he's effectively saying, yes, be prepared for the antichrist, but not preoccupied with the antichrist, since you need to be alert to what is already going on now. We've just heard what it is. The antichrist will be the fulfillment of the complete spirit of the antichrist, a term again used by John later on, but the spirit already exists even now, in John's time. So he says, don't, don't pre- be preoccupied since you need to be alert right now. So what is the essence of the Antichrist, according to John? If you skip forward to verse 22, Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. In 1 John 4, 3, he fails to acknowledge Jesus. In 2 John 1, 7, he denies that Jesus came in the flesh. So we see that the essence of the Antichrist is a denial of Christ, either by denying his power or falsely claiming his title and saying, I am the Christ. In this instance, the denial of Christ was the denial of his human nature, but by extension, this could apply to any core doctrine of the faith. So, especially the nature of Christ, which is what the vast majority of the Christian cults have in common. So, any doctrine that is core to the Christian faith, the Antichrist will deny that doctrine and and bring something new. Look at Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Unification Church, even Islam, They all teach something aberrant about the nature of Christ, every single one. And we see this is exactly what John's battling. Even at this early stage in the history of the church, we already see people being led astray into all sorts of wayward doctrines. So now that we have an understanding of the term Antichrist in this context, let me give you a bit of an an overview as to the text that we're covering for today. Okay, so we can kind of hang our framework on there. My outline is this, if you're you're taking notes, you can write it down, I'll try and keep it relatively slow. Number one, the threat of Antichrist, that's verse 18 and 19, the threat of Antichrists. Right, we started there, we've already started that. Number two, our defence. Our defence, anointing and knowing, verses 20 and 21. Number three, recognising the Antichrist versus recognising the believer, verses 22 and 23. Number four, abiding in its result, that's eternal life, verses 24 and 25. And then at the end, John gives a recap of this section himself, um, the Antichrist's anointing, knowing and abiding, that's verses 26 to 28. So here we are, and we've seen that John's time, in, in John's time, many Antichrists have come, and he says that because of this, we should know that it is the last hour. He says that to his audience. So, what is the last hour? It's, it's another eschatological term, another term to do with the last things, which really means the final period of time. Literally, the last hour, but metaphorically, the final period of time, or the final stage, if you will. But how can that be since Jesus has not returned since the time that John wrote the epistle? If it was the last hour then, why has Jesus not already come back? I think that what we need to do is to understand what John is saying 
He's saying that we are in the last hour even now. Okay? He's saying that the last hour is the final period before Jesus' return and glorious reign on earth. In other words, it's the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. That's characterized by all of these antichrists through that whole period of time. So we shouldn't be surprised if even from John's time all the way through the Middle Ages to the modern age to now, we see antichrists and that's exactly what we have seen all through church history. The, the term final days is a related term and you see that again through Scripture in Acts 2, 16 to 17, um, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, right? And when does that happen? In the last days, he'll pour out his spirit. He did that at Pentecost, right? So the pouring out of the spirit is the last day. So that's the last days then. First Corinthians 10, the Old Testament stories were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. So he's already in the end of the age. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 9, all demonstrate the fact, and 1 Peter 1, all demonstrate the fact that the, 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 the last hour, the final days, began at Christ's first coming and will culminate at Christ's second coming. But then we see the, the, the threat of the Antichrist continued in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. It seems here, and, and commentators tend to agree that they, they left of their own volition. This is no church split. It was the removal of a heretical element within the body. Okay? It's important that we make this distinction. This, this wasn't the parting of brothers. Okay? Evidently, these guys were teaching a subversion of the core of Christianity, namely that Jesus was not the Messiah or that the Messiah didn't die. The reality is that church splits do happen and sometimes for good reason. It's a different thing. They can tend to hurt a lot of people, but sometimes two genuine Christians, both holding the core elements of Christianity, even sharing the same overall view of the authority of the Scriptures, will disagree. Now, if that happens, that those disagreements centre over a doctrinal position that defines a particular group, then something has to give. So there either needs to be an alteration in the doctrinal position of that particular group to accommodate those two views, but if that's not possible, then a split is necessary, or else you've just got conflict. Now, I think one of the reasons that God has allowed denominations is so that people can disagree and still worship God and still have fellowship in, in, in more casual ways with other Christians from other churches, and that's fine. We don't have to all agree. Um, and even within our church, we, we hold some different positions. But these two people or groups have no reason to view one another with suspicion or with hate at all. They can even continue to work together for the furtherance of the gospel. Sadly, I think we get so hung up on our particular view of the world at times that we forget to be gracious in dealing with our differences. You don't need to agree with a brother or sister on every single point of doctrine in order to have fellowship with that person, nor to work together for the purposes of sharing the gospel of Christ. Of course, we believe that what we hold is true or else we wouldn't believe it, obviously. But we mustn't forget to season our conviction with a good dose of humility. Nor must, must we confuse the conviction we have around the core doctrines of Christianity with a conviction on the secondary issues of theology. 
because they're not as important. They're just not. One makes you a Christian. One makes you just a certain kind of Christian, right? It's, it's, a, it's worlds apart. As it turns out, these, these particular troublemakers in John's time were not of us. In other words, they were not believers. They certainly professed to be believers and continued to do so, but they did not hold to the Christian faith. Whether they held it at some particular point or not is not mentioned. And whether that's even a possibility will likely depend on your view of the perseverance of the saints. Regardless, it's fairly academic since the end result was that they are now known to be outside of the church and this was in fact God's intention in their leaving. You can see from the text, He intended for them to leave, to make it plain that they did not belong to the faith. Chuck Smith said before that it's a sign of a healthy body that it can fight a poison. Okay? It's when the body gets weak that poison will destroy the body. The church must be ready to deal decisively with this sort of error if and when it encounters it in its own ranks. So we see the threat of Antichrist and the particular situation that John was facing that seems to repeat itself over and over again in our own history. And what is the solution that John proposes? We see our defence, verses 20 to 21. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. First, the Holy One spoken of here is Jesus Christ, as outlined in Mark 3, John 6 and Revelation chapter 3. At the, at the first, it's a little surprising, though, to see that John's solution for us, as much as for his original audience, is to offer two facts. Number one, that we are anointed. And number two, that we have knowledge. So my question is, what does it mean to be anointed? It's not a way that I usually think of myself. It's not a way that we usually think of ourselves as being anointed. The fact is that the word Christ means anointed one. It's directly equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah, which again means anointed one. Both these words mean anoint, and anoint, what does that mean? It turns out it's actually a very plain word in the original languages, even in English. It doesn't have necessarily originally religious connotations. The word anoint means to smear oil on something, okay? Shepherds used to anoint their sheep back in the Old Testament days. They used to anoint with oil to stop the the little bugs from getting into their ears and killing killing the sheep. So anointing is just a word that means to smear oil upon. But we saw through history in each and every culture in in the history as, as worship of God saturated the culture, anoint in, in Hebrew culture came to mean have a, a religious significance because it's what they would do um, to set someone apart for a particular purpose of God. And, and, and again in Greek and again in English language, anoint does carry this religious connotation. Okay? In the Old Testament, we see three groups of people being anointed. There's prophets, kings and priests. And they had developed this, this notion that there would arrive, in, in Hebrew times, that there would arrive the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. Again, another word for anointed, chosen one. The chosen one anointed to a very specific role. So what does it mean to be anointed ones? What I would argue it means is that Christ himself has shared his own anointing with us. The very word Christian means little Christ, little anointed ones. 
So where Jesus himself was anointed by the Father, in Acts chapter 10 we see that, he then pours out from himself something of his own anointing on us, the believer. And the way this happens is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every single believer is anointed at the moment of their conversion. And therefore, as anointed ones, you are not only set apart to a specific calling, but you are given the means to fulfill that calling by the very same anointing for which you were set apart in the first place. Do you follow? So this very same anointing that sets you apart also gives you the Holy Spirit, which enables you to fulfill the calling of being set apart. So whilst under the old covenant, God's Spirit would come upon His anointed at specific times, He ultimately resided in the tabernacle or later on in the temple. In John 14, Jesus promised that when He leaves the disciples, He would leave them with a helper. Then at the crucifixion, when Jesus cried, it is finished, and this was in that, one of those songs, do you remember what happened? The veil tore before you, it says. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the Holy Spirit came out of its earthly dwelling, and according to 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6, we have become the temple of the living God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what does this anointing actually do? Well, there are a number of answers to that, but from this passage, we see two things. First, it gives us knowledge, and later in verse 27, it teaches us. Ultimately, it helps us to see truth. And we see this paralleled in two accounts. First, in the Revelation to the churches in Revelation 3, verse 18, Jesus says, "'By ointment with which to anoint your eyes "'so that you may see.'" And remember when when Jesus um, meets the blind man and he he makes a a salve, which is really another word for ointment, he makes a salve out of mud and spit and he rubs it on the blind man's eyes and the blind man is able to see. It's no accident. Jesus could have just healed him. Why did he do that? He's demonstrating something that, that, that an anointing will open your eyes. We are the blind man prior to our conversion. We may grasp certain things, but to ascertain spiritual truths, we were blind, we were groping in the dark. I mentioned before that we had this um, two weeks of holidays. The first week we we got away and we we went fishing. So, um, well, we went camping. I went fishing. Uh, We went camping, you know, camping, proper camping, where you go and you make yourself as uncomfortable as possible. Uh, and then you try and make yourself as comfortable as possible while being as uncomfortable as possible. It's a, it's a weird thing. Uh, and I must have spent, I reckon I would have clocked up about 30 hours of, uh, of fishing time with my rod in the water. Um, and the, you know, the kids in Kendall, they came and went and I, I'd, I'd read about the tides and I was going at the right time and the weather and I was on my kayak trying to get down, took Zimmy down and tried to find the right spot to fish. You know what, I caught nothing. I caught one fish. It was a brim and it was this big. <laughs> this big. Anyways, uh, I'm not much of a fisherman, apparently. But uh, towards the end of the week, this, this, um, we were camping right on the water, so we're fishing just next to the tent. And this, this father and son, the son's probably about 14 years old, they rock up and, uh, and I, I thought it was probably my duty to let them know that there's actually no fish in this area of ocean. 
<laughs> so I, I made myself known to them. I, I said, you know, there, there actually are no fish in here, um, in case you're wondering. And uh, while literally while we're still talking, the 14-year-old, his, his rod just kind of bends in half. And he, <laughs> and he pulls in this massive brim. <laughs> Enough to feed his whole family, apparently. I, I was looking forward to fish all week. Um, anyway. It's funny how you can assume that you know something, but still be so far from the mark. And when it comes to spiritual truths, this is what happens to us when we're, when we're anointed. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I'm pleased that the Lord doesn't limit himself to doing only the things in us that we are aware that he's doing. Does that make sense? We're going to repeat it. The Lord doesn't limit himself to doing only the things in us that we are aware, that we are aware he is doing. Or put another way, the Lord works in us in ways that we sometimes don't understand. And the fact that we don't understand the way that he works does not prevent him from doing that work. And here, when it comes to anointing, we have one such example. I think we don't think about ourselves as being anointed. We don't necessarily, are not always necessarily aware of the, of the work of the Holy Spirit in us constantly. And yet, God does that work in us by his grace. So to summarise, if you're a believer, you have been anointed, and number two, you know, but the question is, what do you know? Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. In my emphasis, but because you do know it. and Because no lie is of the truth. In other words, I'm not writing to tell you some different or new doctrine, they've already had enough of that. Sitting in judgment over a previous teaching, because you already know the truth. And that is the basic message that you've already been given. And how do you know the truth? By being anointed. So we see here the second part of the equation when it comes to defending against false doctrine, and that is knowing. It's important to note here that anointing does not provide new knowledge. It helps us to recognize that something is true. But where do we get that truth? There are a number of ways of, of coming upon truth just generally in life, and whilst one, only one is infallible, that's the Scriptures, obviously, others can be useful as long as they're subject to Scriptures and to our ability to know. So Scripture is God's infallible message to us. It contains within it everything He wants us to hold as being objectively true about God Himself about us and about others. But it is not the only way that God communicates with us. As an example, if I'm thinking about a new job or, or if I'm thinking about starting a new venture or beginning a new course of study or moving to this or to that place, or if you're wondering whether or not this or that relationship is, is right to pursue, you will not find the answer to that very specific question in that book that you hold in front of you. You cannot, I cannot turn to the book of, of Nick, chapter October 2019, verse, the, whatever the date it is today, 13th, and read if I should buy that boat. You know, it doesn't happen. Certainly, we can discover principles for making wise decisions in these things. I mean, this is what Proverbs is all about, right? How do we make decisions? How, how are we wise? 
And by and large, these are the exact principles we use to, to live a God-honoring and a godly life. But, but I believe that God has an opinion on the specifics of your situation. I believe He has plans for you. Very specific plans. Very good plans. And that He has already taken into account the, the decisions that He in His omniscience knows you will make. I also believe that at times he chooses to reveal these plans to us, or at least the next steps he wishes us to take. And how does he do this? By giving us his spirit, by anointing us with his spirit, by indwelling us with his spirit. And it is as we are sensitive to his prompting and these things that we shall live a life full of obedience to him. We see this as the pattern for all heroes of the faith, from Paul and the apostles of the New Testament through to the present day via Calvin Wesley, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, these people all had one thing in common. They believed in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us. Read their biographies, you'll see it plain as day. And let me say here, when it comes to reaching this world, that if God is doing something special, if His Spirit is at work, and if you're seeking His direction and following His lead, the strategy you use will be irrelevant. If the Spirit is doing something, it doesn't matter what programs you have. It doesn't matter how you're going at reaching all the KPIs in your five-year plan. It just doesn't. All you've got to do is just get on board and go with Him. His plans are perfect. Now, if you were to flip a few books to the right from 1 John, you would come across Jude. And he's dealing with very similar issues of false teachers, but in a slightly different context. Now, Jude does two things. Number one, he refers them back to the teaching of the apostles. Number one, the only infallible source of knowledge. And two, and this is interesting, he says of the false teachers that the scoffers, full of ungodly passions, that they're devoid of something. So these false teachers are devoid of something. What are they devoid of, is my question. A good hermeneutic? That's important, but no. A perfect systematic theology? Again, important, but no. Great apologetics? No, that's not it. They are devoid of the Spirit. And the antidote to this, says Jude, is to build themselves up in the faith, which includes Scripture. And he's already mentioned the objectively true teaching of the apostles, the equivalent for us being Scripture. And the second antidote is to be praying in the Holy Spirit, according to Jude. And this is exactly what we see here in the book of 1 John. Whilst John and Jude refer to the teaching already given or the apostles' teaching, as, as Scripture is being written, we see the gradual shift from the apostles' teaching to the Scriptures as being the only objective authority on all issues of life and doctrine. On all issues. So whilst in the, in the early days the canon wasn't closed, the canon wasn't finished, not all the New Testament had been written, the, 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 the early apostles had authority and that authority shifted over time to the Scriptures. And so we're faced with one very important fact. If you do not know doctrine or if you are not anointed or living in the anointing, you will be deceived. You will be deceived. But the antidote is so much more than only a solid plan for avoiding error. The anointing is not just about avoiding error. It's also about the plan for entering His will. You can easily go wrong in one of two ways here. 
You can go all out with the Spirit. We've all seen it. It's, it's closely associated with this idea of, of, just, of just feeling our way with God, you know? Not wasting time with these big, thick books. You know, all, all, all that overly complicated stuff of, of doctrine and, and apologetics. I mean, I mean, why would you even apologize, you know? Um, it, it's, it's just like, it's, <laughs> seriously, I've, I've seen it. I've been on internet chat rooms. Uh, people don't use chat rooms anymore, do they? Whatever, blogs, Twitter. The risk of this particular approach is, number one, gross doctrinal error, okay? Number two, a weak faith, never moving on from milk. Number three, anti-intellectualism, which destroys our witness. And let's face it, the other risk is, four, just plain weirdness, okay? We've seen it. It's uncomfortable. The other way to go wrong is to, is to completely intellectualize and to avoid those crazy Pentecostals, I think this can go in two directions. It could be an intellectual pursuit that neglects a relationship with God, okay, and leads to dead liberalism, denying the core doctrines of the faith and eventually leading to no faith at all and I've seen it with friends and it's devastating. Or two, if the person maintains a belief in, in, in the core doctrines of God, if they maintain a relationship with God, it can lead to a, a dry kind of legalism, the, the kind that appears to be strong in so many areas of doctrine, but ultimately becomes dry and exclusive. Those, those fellowships that hold this view will often keep growing in spite of an, an apparent position against the work of the Holy Spirit. But they grow in spite of this doctrine because certain individuals will maintain a spiritual vigour through their own prayer and personal study of Scripture in those groups. But there will always be something missing, and that is the recognition of the Spirit's work in the life of the church and its individuals. This can affect both the joy that we experience and our ability to disciple and to witness. Instead, God has called us to the middle road, one that worships Him both in spirit and in truth. Which leads us to recognising the Antichrist versus recognising the believer. Verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now we've already covered much of this, but briefly this is how we recognise the Antichrist as opposed to recognising the believer. Verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father, Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The Son is the only way to the Father. Remember that Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, no one what? No one comes to the Father except through me. He also says, I and the Father are one. Exactly. Now, now, both of these focus, both of these statements that he makes in verse 23, they focus around one thing, and that is the Son. It's not the Father. It's not that the Father is unimportant. No. In, in a sense, this verse acknowledges that the relationship with the Father is part of the end goal, but this passage is undeniably Christ-centered in its approach. You simply cannot get to the Father without going through the Son. Our destiny will rise and fall in accordance with our response to Jesus and nothing else. He will either be our salvation or our stumbling block. We can't avoid that decision. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. 
And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. One of the things we saw in the introduction to this book was that John was providing three tests, of the, this is from a previous message, three tests of the genuine believer. Here we revisit the first test, that is the test of doctrine. Um, it's, it's previously mentioned in, in chapter 1 verse 6 with the test of obedience in chapter 2 verse 4 and the test of love um, which I spoke about last time in verses 9 to 11 of this chapter but we see here a, a new concept in this section and that is abiding. He's mentioned it before in this book um, but in passing and now we see it as, a, as an imperative. We spoke about this word abide previously, it just basically means to stay somewhere or to remain. There's nothing fancy about the word, it's a a Christianese word. You, you don't use the word in general language. I don't, I don't say I'm going to go and stay, uh, going to go and abide at Terry's house tonight. You just, you don't do that, right? You just say stay and that's really what it means. Um, but this phrase, what you heard from the beginning, we also discussed previously. It basically means the gospel message as delivered by the apostles from the earliest days of the church. And John's saying that if we hold on to these core truths of who Jesus is, the truth of our sin, of our need for forgiveness and redemption from sin. We hold on to the fact that God has provided a way through the sacrifice of His Son, the God-man Jesus, that Jesus defeated death and now sits at the right hand of the Father, that all we must do to be saved is to acknowledge our need for a Saviour and put our trust in Him. It is as we hold these core truths, as we have them abide or remain in us, as they continue to be held by us, then we will abide in the Son and in the Father. It can be summarised by that song that we read, that we, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but shall have eternal life. How do we abide? How do we do it? How do we, hold, how do we continue to hold these core doctrines as being true? Not just intellectually, but here? Through the anointing holding fast to truth. This also raises the possibility of not abiding and we need to continue to take those warnings seriously or else they have no purpose at all. And of course we see the result of this abiding and that is life eternal. That is the resurrected life of Jesus Christ in us now. John says later in this letter, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you realise that eternal life doesn't start when you die? Eternal life has already begun in you if you are belonging to God. You're already in possession of it. And all that is left to do is to remain, to abide. And so John offers this recap here in verses 26 to 28. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you do not need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as this has taught you, abide in him. And now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So we see a great recap of all we've just looked at. There are antichrists, we are anointed. That anointing plus our knowledge of truth is our best defence against the antichrists. That exercising that anointing and knowledge will not only keep us safe, but will lead us to abiding in the Lord. 
But what about verse 27? That you have no need that anyone should teach you. Does that mean we don't need Terry? Do we not need our Sunday school teachers? No, that's not what John's saying. Else he would be undermining his own position as a teacher and apostle. It's also in direct opposition to what we see in Ephesians 4.11, that the role of pastor and teacher have been established by God for the church. So in what sense is it true? Well, the second half of verse 27 says that as his anointing teaches you about, in other words, you don't need anyone to teach you that something is true. But again, the Spirit does not teach doctrinal content. We've already got our doctrinal content. It's in Scripture. See back in verse 24, it's called the Apostles' Doctrine. And very often this needs to be explained to us through either personal study or through sound teaching from someone appointed to the role. But what we have is the ability to recognize that teaching as sound or otherwise. And finally, John adds a purpose. Why will we abide? And the answer is so that we may be confident at his coming. I wonder what we'll find ourselves doing when he returns, if it happens in our lifetime. What will you be doing at that exact moment that Jesus comes back? I, I'm, I'm sure I don't want to be found kind of wasting my time <laughs> doing something. I'd hate to get caught up watching Downton Abbey, you know? <laughs> or, what's the other one? Poldark. They're good, they're good, they're fun, but... You know, I'm kind of hoping that, that, that when he comes back, I'll be leading worship. <laughs> I'm like, hey, God, look at me, I'm over here. Yeah, <laughs> over here doing the leadership stuff. No. Um, let's not wait to be faithful to God. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Jesus said, Make disciples, and lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. He added that section especially for us, by the way. To the end of the age. This is the anointing that Jesus sends us, but at the same time, he promises that he will be with us by his Spirit. So let me ask this. How much do you believe that Jesus is with you right now? If you could literally bring him along in physical form, if you could literally stand him next to you right now, how would you behave? What would you do? What would you say? I'd be like, just speak, Jesus. How would I behave? There's been those times in my life when there's been a a battle between my desire for ease and a desire to do God's will. It never seems more intense than in, in the opportunities to witness. I've been with people who are quite literally days or even hours away from death and have still felt fearful of sharing the gospel with them. Why? Because I'm afraid that that dying person might dislike me for the next couple of days. Maybe they'll think I'm crazy. But it's those moments of faithfulness in the midst of fear that I've been more aware of God's presence than at any other time in my life. Those moments where you take that step and you start sharing, you can sense the presence of God's Spirit with you, giving you the words to say. Over and over again through the Old and the New Testaments and onwards into church history, we see the incredible work of God in the moments following an obedient step in the face of fear. From Abraham 
to Noah, to David, to Samuel, Nehemiah and all those who helped to rebuild the wall and later the temple, through to Peter, Paul, Stephen, all the martyrs of the church age. It's as we move from fear into obedience that we are aware of God's Holy Spirit in us and working through us. As we finish up, I'd just like us to reflect on, on one thing. And is, what am I holding on to that's stopping me from hearing God's Spirit right now? Is it a fear that He'll ask me to let go of something that I'm not ready to give up? Is it my desire for comfort or for pleasure? Is it my pride? Or is it something else? The truth is that there is another reality that we cannot see in the flesh. We need to learn to be dissatisfied with anything less than hearing from God Himself. First, through Scripture, but secondarily, through the direct witness of the Spirit, of the living God, to our own spirit. Let's pray. We might just uh, spend a, a little moment of silence just before God as we kind of lay at His feet all those things which might hinder us our hopes and our dreams, our biggest anxieties, our biggest blessings, our ongoing difficulties, the deepest desires of our heart. It's been said that our ultimate desire is our ultimate delusion unless our ultimate desire is to fulfill the very words of God. To lay down our need for significance, our need for recognition, our need for comfort, a desire to be liked and approved by other people. Father, we come before you as imperfect people, saved by grace, being led by the Spirit. That's how we got here. Father, we thank you that your, your Spirit is at work in each and every one of us here this afternoon. We thank you that you're a good God who loves us, who has wonderful plans. Lord, we want less of us and more of you. Lord, may you be glorified. May you be honoured. Lord, direct us, we pray. May we abide in you more and more. May we rest in you. May we find our hope in you. May all our, our plans, all our hopes be surrendered to you. In Jesus' name, amen.